Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Many of our narratives feature outsiders. They might be alone by virtue of the burden of prophecy, come from the wrong side of the tracks, or simply don't adhere to behaviour and interests their society expects of them. We see these tropes pop up all over the place. After all, following an outsider protagonist immediately creates conflict. In this episode, we want to focus on one particular source of isolating and othering characters. Aberrant magic. When it comes to fantasy, authors love to create intricate magic systems and then uh, break them. So they may give a character magic and power beyond what is normal for that world, or magic in any form may be considered aberrant. But what we mean by aberrant in this context is departing from an accepted standard or diverging from the normal type. So why is this trope so popular? And how does it manifest in our favourite fantasy stories? Luckily, we have Melissa Caruso with us for this discussion, someone who is no stranger to protagonists with aberrant magic. Melissa, it's great to have you. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm Melissa Caruso. I'm the author of the Swords and Fire trilogy uh, from Orbit Books, which uh, includes The Tethered Mage, The Defiant Air, and The Unbound Empire. And uh, I have a new book that just came out, The Obsidian Tower, which begins uh, the Rooks and Ruin trilogy in the same world. I just finished reading The Obsidian Tower and I bloody loved it. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was great. But I didn't, I, I've not read the first series and I didn't realize they were set in the same world. So that makes me very eager to get my hands on that series. (laughs) But a good magic system has internal logic. We love internal logic. So why then do we see, love to see these anomalies within these magic systems? You go and, and work so hard about creating this intricate system and then, but suddenly you're like, oh no, actually I'm going to create this whole system and then throw in some character who just does something completely different. So, you know, why do we love to see that so much? Well, I think that uh, part of it is, well, we always love it when protagonists are, uh, why are they the protagonist, right? There's usually, we we love it when there's something a little bit special about them, why this is the person that we've told, picked to tell this story about. In, uh, In my case, I like causing problems for my characters. So like in the Obsidian Tower, Rix's magic is actually kind of worse than everybody else's in some ways. And uh, so I was interested in the unique problems that that would cause her. But I think you also, of course, see ones who have magic that's more powerful, which of course makes them the protagonist because they're going to be more able to affect change on the world around them. But yeah, I, I think also it's it's one of those uh, things where you spend all this time building it. And then, of course, you think, OK, now, what can I do within this system that at the same time breaks it? I mean, as a world building thing, I think that can be if you have a really consistent magic system where you can take rules that you've developed and just push them in a totally different direction. That can also be really exciting. Yeah, I agree. One thing that always sort of. I wonder about, you know, how do you frame a magic where, you, as you say, you're breaking that? And how do you frame that so that it doesn't appear like you've suddenly gone 
inconsistent or you've created some kind of arbitrary mechanic that doesn't fit with everything else? How do you marry those two up when you're writing? Well, I think the key is, so if you were going to look at it metaphorically, if everybody has boats, but you have a plane, you're still not breaking the rules of physics. Uh, like the underly- underlying um, like cosmological level principles of how things work, you're not breaking. It's just you're using those same fundamental underlying principles to do something different, or you're working with a different set of non-conflicting fundamental principles that just aren't related to the ones that everybody else's magic is working with. Like in that case, I think of something like Naomi Novik's uh, Uprooted, where the main character has magic that's just much more naturey, touchy-feely, and then everyone else is doing this scholarly magic, and, and they're just, they're all in a huff about it because she's not following their rules, but it still works. Uh, <laughs> but it's clear that it, you know, you have the sense that it has its own rules. They're just, they're, it's just operating on principles that are not really related to what everybody else is studying and looking at. Well, when I was thinking about the aberrant magic books that I read, and Uprooted was one of them, uh, Lucy's series was another one. And I was kind of thinking that in Uprooted in particular, you've got this idea of evolution occurring. And you think about anything else in the world, even cybercrime, and it's always kind of moving, it's always changing. There's very little in life that is stagnating. And you kind of have to put that into books with your magic because magic is quite often not a living thing, but it is a very strong force and it shouldn't be the same for everybody all the time. And it's likely to evolve, which I think was kind of an element within Uprooted. But then I thought about Lucy's um, and I don't, I want to talk about it without giving away too many spoilers in case any of our listeners haven't read it. Oh, it has been out for five years. (laughs) Well, you kind of had this idea that there were two main sources of magic and then kind of a third that wasn't an evolution and a step forward, but was almost a step back because it was rediscovering an old style of magic. So I thought it was quite interesting how some people choose to go, well, actually, my aberrant magic is going to be not necessarily the magic developing, but perhaps how people use it developing and changing their methods compared to maybe, well, actually, we found a new source of magic or a different magic associated with the magic, and we're going to go down a whole new route. It's interesting that you brought up the idea of evolution, because obviously one of the the things that I thought of thinking about aberrant nature is mutants. So it's like X-Men, all of the X-Men are their own aberrations in themselves, and they all have different mutations as you know, we humans evolve to have these different mutations and so on. So that is, yeah, a really interesting way to look at it. Well, one of the other things I thought about, which ties in with your X-Men, and I'm so, so embarrassed to admit this, but my daughter watches Ever After High, which is a terrible program. But all the characters in that have magic and in some form or another, or they get involved in a magical event. And the one thing I do quite like about that is that their magic is very personal to them. So it's not, nobody is aberrant because they're all very unique and there is no standard rule of magic. It just differs between each person. But where the aberration comes in is usually their weaknesses and how their weaknesses affect the way they do magic. And quite often because it's ever after high, so it's set in a high school, anything slightly different about your magic is then somebody has a go at you because you're not popular, you're not cool, you've brought about eternal winter, all the kind of high school stuff you would expect. And again, the same with My Little Pony, this idea that everybody's got their own sort of style of magic, which I just thought was very interesting where you've kind of got nobody is aberrant because everybody's so unique. 
Ah, uh, yes, but there you come onto it because giving any character an aberrant magical ability is a useful way of othering them from the rest of society. So let's touch on that for a little bit. You know, what? Why do socially isolated characters make for such good protagonists? Why do we love to make our protagonists be alone or, or different or picked on? Well, I think, you know, I think part of it is just that gets instant sympathy. Uh, it's a quick way to get people invested in a character uh, because I think we've all felt that way at one point or another in our lives. But I also think there's a couple other things going on, one of which is you need a reason why uh, a fantasy character in particular is going to be willing to give up a lot and go risk a lot and, you know, have dangerous adventures or try to save the world or whatever. And if they have a really great life with a lot of friends and a wonderful family who loves them, their motivation to throw all that away is, is going to be a lot lower. So if they're already isolated, it just, it kind of makes your work a little bit easier as a jumping off point. I think it's one of the reasons we get a lot of orphans and loners and outcasts and things like that in fantasy is it's just, well, of course you're going to go, go do some amazing adventure because what else are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this and I feel like a lot of the tension in fantasy novels in particular comes from when magic has the possibility to threaten the status quo or to upset the establishment. So to, you know, particularly if you're talking about a world where magic has long been established, where, you know, because obviously there are two different things. There's obviously a world where there is no magic and the person with magic is the aberrant for having something that no one else has. And there's also a world where magic is long established and long accepted, but the person who is this main character maybe has magic that differs from accepted magic, which is pretty much what I did in my trilogy. And I think that we're so kind of drawn to this because, and I think it's it's also to do with what you touched on about the fact that, you know, someone who... Very often these people with aberrant magic don't have, like they have to be taken away from their family. There's something that their aberrant magic, it destroys a certain kind of normal, in air quotes, elements of family life and the, the normal elements of kind of how they operate as people. And so, and it sends them out into the world. And I think that's so, it's, it's really interesting to say that, you know, aberrant magic then threatens um, a lot of the, kind of established structures that 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 a fantasy world has been built upon yeah definitely uh uh it's easier to any story is fundamentally about uh some kind of threat to the status quo or upending of the status quo whether that's seen as a good thing or a bad thing so that's certainly uh easier to do from uh already an outsider perspective and i think um I think also gives them something to yearn for on a personal level as well. I think that one of the reasons that we tend to click with, with these outsiders is they have, it's very clear what they want, right? You, you know that fundamentally when, when you're looking at questions of belonging already, if you've got aberrant magic, you're, you, you're in some way not part of the main group, not part of the system and there's that question of, all right, are you just rejecting that entirely or are you seeking to belong? And that creates a natural tension uh, that can be in play. It's interesting what you were saying about not being part of the main group. And one of the things I thought about was if you've got 
the uber magic. And even if you're learning it, it's pretty obvious to the people reading, your readers or your viewers or whatever, that you are going to win and you're going to win out and it's going to be a victory and it's going to change the world, blah, blah, blah. That's something that we kind of accept. And I did wonder if being socially isolated, as well as being a motivation for leaving a hostile environment, is also a way for your character to grow. Because if all they're doing through that time is learning how to use magic and become awesome, that's not a very interesting story. But if you've got them learning other skills as well and learning that it's not just about magic, it's about being a gregarious creature. It's about learning to work with others. And that even though you have this ultimate power, you have to find your own little group to be in, to be supported. Because I can't think of many stories where you have an aberrant magic user who doesn't form some sort of bond with either one person or a group of people and then comes out better for it with friends at the end. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely a great point, especially because uh, because it is often uh, not just aberrant, but more powerful magic. And then you run into the ch- problem of how are you going to challenge this character who has this amazing power and, well, social challenges. It won't. It's not going to help you it, that you can you know, blow up a city or whatever, if, if what you really need to do is make friends, (laughs) you know, it it puts them out of their element and gives you something to work with there. And I thought about Terry Pratchett's witches, you know, when I was doing this and you've got Esme Weatherwax who has the ultimate power, but she's so socially inept and she's just not nice to people. And then you have Nanny Oak who has lesser power, but is a really good people person. And the two of them kind of combine well together. And Esme Weatherwax would not be as brilliant or as alive as she is if it wasn't for Nanny Og kind of helping her grow in that way. Absolutely. In The Obsidian Tower, Rix, she is very feared. She's got magic that terrifies people. And, you know, as we've mentioned, that aberrant magic often is more powerful or it's it's frightening in some way. Again, that kind of leads into, you know, as we were talking about breaking established norms or kind of a a revolution changing the established status quo. What I wonder about is whether there's a difference when it comes to aberrant magic for female characters versus male characters. And in particular, I'm personally thinking about this from the perspective of, say, the, the feminist movement. You have you know, women trying to overthrow the patriarchy or or a structure that generally keeps them down and has very specific expectations for them that they are trying to break free of. So to me, this kind of aberrant magic trope feels a bit like a metaphor. But at the same time, sometimes those characters with aberrant magic, if they're not presented as the protagonist, they can be a villain and so on. And it, it's it's interesting, and I just wonder if female characters are kind of seen as scarier when they have aberrant magic than men, or I don't know. Anyone have any thoughts on that? I think that's really interesting because when I uh, when I think through it, I feel like in terms of characters with aberrant magic, if they're a white male, they are more likely to be a chosen one. And to be uplifted and, oh, they're the true king or they're, you know, they're, they're the person who's supposed to restore the order in some way, right? Not, not always, but I feel like you're more likely to fall into those tropes and have them be a chosen one who is supposed to be uplifted and revered. Whereas uh, when you have female characters or non-white characters with aberrant magic, I feel like you're 
a little more likely to see them as a th- as a threat to the order, which I mean, it makes sense that on some level that would be more likely to be at least in many in your fantasy society may or may not have sexism or racism, but I think that as readers we're uh, certainly perhaps a little bit more likely to see that as a goal that those characters would have. Like they're not as likely to be invested in the existing system in a position of power already. Whereas if it's a white guy who just picked up the singing sword or whatever, then the chance that they're already on top and are fundamentally trying to preserve their position there with their chosen oneness uh, might seem to be a little bit more of an intuitive pattern that we would fall into. Yeah, actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking about N.K. Jemison's um, The Fifth Season, mm. where you have the origins and they're feared and despised, and and that in itself is, it's used as a metaphor for racism in that, that respect and how um, black people were ostracized. So, yeah, I definitely see it as, as a metaphor for that, which is, yeah, mm. interesting. I think Melissa is completely right to say that you know, very often the aberrant magic, when demonstrated by a male character, is much more um, likely to be interpreted as a, the power of a chosen one and the power of the saviour of humanity. Whereas if it's demonstrated by a woman, it's very likely in the context of a rebellion or a social upheaval. I'm thinking of like Victoria Aveyard's Red Queen series and Mare's power that she has in, that she demonstrates in that, which is specifically aberrant and nobody has ever seen it before because she obviously comes from a lower class of of people who shouldn't really display that kind of ability anyway. And I was thinking, even thinking about Cersei, Madeline Miller's Cersei to some extent, because her power to reveal something's true nature is certainly frowned on by the rest of the gods. And she is told very quite, you know, quite strongly that um, this is absolutely not acceptable. Um, And, and, she spends much of the novel kind of getting to grips with what that power means and the, the the kind of devastation it can cause, but also the truths it can reveal and how it can help her grow. But of course, she spends most of the novel in exile. Um, and again, she's an, an example of a woman who is set against the patriarchal establishment. She's set against the establishment that you know has raised her. So I really, I do feel that there is some, there's definitely some traction in the argument about aberrant magic when it's a female specifically, it's very much an upsetting of the status quo and it is not accepted. I also think it's interesting when you look at aberrant magics where they are ostracised, say, for their strange magic until it turns out that they are the saviour of everything. And suddenly everyone's really nice to them. Everyone's just, oh, we loved you. We were always friends. Yeah, yeah, of course. I was never mean to you. And uh, I'm going to pick up a really strange uh, left field example here. But the one thing that I actually thought about in this case was Rudolph. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even the right season. I know, but, you know, all the other reindeer pick on him, but then they're all friends again because his nose can light the way. Aberrant magic. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and those other reindeer were such jerks too, you know? But (laughs) And then suddenly they're his best friends. And always as a kid, I was kind of a little bit like, really? (laughs) 
so yeah. shallow. Yeah, well, though, I just hold up my hands. That is something I never did in my trilogy and I never wanted to do. My main character's aberrant magic is always going to set her apart forever. And I feel like, you know, that, that yeah, that is that is a thing. I feel like you do have to make that decision that whether the there is, that part of your character's journey is to make society accept the need for aberrant magic as a metaphor for change. So they need to open their eyes and see that there is another way of looking at the world. Or you can situate that magic as something that is always other and will always be a part. And I think both approaches are very interesting. It totally depends what you want to do with the character. One thing that I think is really interesting in the way that fantasy treats aberrant magic and, you know, the Rudolph thing being a great example is how long it takes people to figure out that this can be useful. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you look at our real world, maybe the closest thing would be new technology. And we're usually very excited to find new technologies that can be applied in new ways. And, you know, but then in, in fantasy, we, we sort of tend to make the space assumption that people will be extremely wary of magic that does different things. And uh, instead of jumping on it and being like, Oh, this is amazing. Look, we can use it for this and this and this and this, this is great. Which, you know, which they probably should have figured out with Rudolph a little earlier on because I mean, a light up nose is pretty useful. Well, I suppose the, the problem with potentially magic similarly to technology actually is that constant fear of how it will be used so if some power comes up and you 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 know you've never seen it before or it can do totally awesome things whoever has that power then is going to be the political power in that world or you know is it going to be used as a weapon or th those kinds of questions start to come up so i i think Maybe uh, the villains would be very excited by a lot of aberrant magic. They go, ooh, rub their hands together and say, ooh, well, yes, I can use this to wipe out everyone. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's where my brain went anyway. But what's really interesting is that you have to say, do the villains of a piece ever exhibit aberrant magic? Or is it more likely to be the protagonist of the story who is there to upset the order, who is there to challenge power, who is there to save the world? I think when you see villains with aberrant magic, you're usually starting the story where they have already used that aberrant magic to be in power. That's that's why they're the dark, evil king, queen. That is interesting. Who who they they got in power with their aberrant magic and they're sitting on it, and that's why sometimes you need the hero who also has the maybe a different flavor of aberrant magic or maybe actually the same one so you know to come up and challenge them and why no one else has been able to i'm trying to think of a case where the villain has aberrant i mean i guess sometimes you'll see you know the kind of magneto figure who's more of a of a revolutionary force with aberrant magic but i think then they're more likely to be a semi sympathetic villain as opposed to a straight up mustache twirling evil the one example I could think of when I was thinking about this, and I, it depends on your version of magic, if we go with the theory that any technology sufficiently advanced can look like magic, I was thinking of the Matrix, where you have Neo, who is the aberrant one, who can twist the Matrix to the way he wants, and he's the chosen one or whatever, and you end it with him being, you know, Superman. 
And then in the sequel, Agent Smith changes himself and he then finds a different way to utilize the Matrix so that he can then match up to Neo and he can evolve so that he can actually take him down, which I thought was quite an interesting idea because like Melissa says, quite often it is the villain already set up and then the aberrant magic comes for the hero to try and take them down. I thought it was quite interesting to see it reacting the other way for a change. Oh yeah, I never thought of it that way. That is really neat, actually. <laughs> I, do you know what? I love it when you talk about a film that I've actually seen. I'm like, I understand what you're saying because you, <laughs> you and Meg are so, so well watched <laughs> compared to me. I'm like, wow, I actually have watched the Matrix trilogy. I understand what you mean. I don't know whether it can, but I suppose you've also got the idea of Star Wars and in the main trilogy, perhaps the best trilogy, episodes four to six, you've got Luke Skywalker with the one who is sort of got the aberrant magic, who he's aberrant because nobody else does it. But back in the very beginning from the prequels, there was this whole idea that it was Anakin who was supposed to be special. And then they went, oh, actually, no, it's not Anakin. It's it's his son. But I suppose if we're looking for sort of aberrant magic from a villain's point of view, then you could argue that there are some examples of that within Star Wars. But that is stretching it a little bit because Jedi are just apparent in general, I think. Yeah, I think you get a different dynamic when it's magic itself as aberrant versus magic is, uh, if not common, at least uh, understood within the rules of the world. And then you have somebody who comes along and is uh, uh, breaking those rules. Just sort of, I guess, how many layers deep you're going. Well, I kind of missed the best place to say this earlier, but... I was also thinking when I came to Pratchett as well as the witches, because they, the witches within Pratchett, there is magic within that world. It's just they have a particular type of magic. And then that led me on to thinking about equal rights, where you have the seventh son of a seventh son, turns out to be the seventh daughter, and she ends up being a wizard rather than a witch. And the whole catalyst of that is this idea that you've got normal male magic and normal female magic and the aberration comes when you try to have one side digging into the other side's magic forces and using that oh my god i'd forgotten that book and it's amazing it is it has some great ideas i love what and also doesn't she turn up in one of the later ones like to um in one of the tiffany aching ones she turns up again oh oh i don't know i've i've only read the first Two Tiffany Aching books, I think. Yep. I'm saving Wintersmith for when it's actually winter. Oh, God, Wintersmith is my favourite. So, yeah. Oh, maybe. look forward to it. I don't think it's Wintersmith she turns up in. I think it's I Shall Wear Midnight that she turns up in. Um, but, yeah, from Equal Rights, I love that. I love the fact that it's, there's this, this gender divide between magic and it's like this one person who, yeah, it's really, really clever, this idea of you're not displaying female magic and nobody knows what to do with her because she's not she's not falling into the status quo. So, again, that's another kind of example of a, a woman upending expected, you know, expected behaviours. Because I was also thinking about the Wheel of Time saga by Robert Jordan, where you've got, again, this idea of male magic and female magic. And I enjoyed the Wheel of Time as a teenager. I don't think I ever finished all the books, but I don't feel that Robert Jordan, for all of his skill, quite got the idea as well as Pratchett did in one book about the differences between male and female and what happens with the conflict between that and the tensions between any one sex can access this type of magic and another sex can access this type of magic. And I was also quite fond of Pratchett and the fact that he kind of 
enshrine this society idea that women are witches and they have this natural sort of intuitive magic, whereas the men are wizards and they have all the runes and the, the staffs and things like that, which I think you see in a lot of literature. If you've got a wizard or anyone with a staff, it's always a bloke. And then throughout history, we've got witches and all the association you have with them. And Melissa saying earlier, of course, about uprooted. <laughs> I was going to say when um, you're aberrant, when you are someone with magic in a world that is non-magical, which of course would be our world. So in our world, witches are aberrant because they can tap into magic than the rest of us can't. And the type of magic that they tap into in Pratchett is the type of magic that you would associate with witches in our world. And then obviously the wizards are just complete fiction because you don't, you didn't necessarily have wizard persecution. But again, I just liked all that different things and the conflicts between how people view the witches and how people view the wizard, wizards and their different types of magic. And generally it's a case of, oh, we try to keep the wizards occupied because otherwise they end up opening up portals into the dungeon dimensions and everything comes out and eats us. Whereas what you worry about with the witches is whether or not they'll hex you as you go past them on the road. It's very gendered, isn't it? Um, but I think Melissa was right to talk about Uprooted because when we were discussing this topic, it, that's, that same title came to me that, you know, that it's very, um, it's made very distinctive. Like Agnieszka has a very different kind of magic from Sarkin, whose magic is extremely bookish and ordered uh, and authoritative and scholarly. Um, and it's very much like her magic is very, is, is what you were talking about, what Pratchett talks about, intuitive women's magic. Um, and that there is a certain, like, I like the way that you um, commented on, the, you know, that the wizards have to be kept busy, like, almost like send them down to the shed at the bottom of the garden so they don't summon demons from the dimension, you know, to overrun the world. So it's a really interesting, um, it's interesting that, that these kind of stereotypes can bleed over into what we, we see as, you know, ideas of magic. So obviously we got sidetracked a bit there onto the idea of gender uh, within magical powers. And I think it'd be really interesting to look at something else we were thinking about as we prepared for this episode, which is whether aberrations of magical power act as stand in for physical or social ones in our own world. So this wouldn't just necessarily be gender. It might be sexual orientation. It could be disability, appearance, species, consciousness, race, anything, whether magic is a way for us to examine these di dynamics in a fantasy setting and make it slightly different, but also quite similar to real world situations. And I wonder what you guys thought about that. I think it can, but I think you have to be very careful because uh, the key difference when you're using magic as a stand-in for uh, a marginalization is that if you actually have a magical power that is different, that is a substantial that makes you more powerful. That's something that you can do that other people actually can't do. There is a real difference. And then it might potentially actually legitimately make you more dangerous. Whereas, you know, in the real world, we are generally dealing with uh, marginalized people are don't have any special powers, don't have anything that is going to give them an edge or make them more dangerous. And it's just you know, it's sort of the worst aspect of humanity that we're oppressing people for no other reason than difference. Whereas like if you have, um, if you have somebody who could hiccup and set your house on fire, that's a legitimate concern. And, and for people to have, which isn't to say that you should then go ahead and treat them poorly and systemically oppress them, of course, but like it is something that society is going to 
have to take into account in some way in terms of your world building in a way that uh, differences that are more superficial really, you know, there, there's just a fundamental difference there. And I think it can be dangerous to equate, oh, look, these, uh, these people have, like, let's say werewolves or people who have fire magic or something like that with uh, an, a group that's oppressed in the real world, because there really is a fundamental difference in terms of of how that's going to operate, that, that there really is a legitimate threat, that they really have actually a power advantage. And if you erase that, then you're sort of, you might accidentally backdoor legitimize the idea that there might be reasons for oppression that are legitimate in the real world when usually there really, really isn't. When I was at a convention, I saw a panel on characters with disabilities and one of the things that people said and was resounded by the whole panel is if you have got magic in your world and you've got a character with a disability, do not make that disability the source of the power. And I thought that was a really interesting point that if you're going to have a character with a disability, that's great. If you're going to have them in a world of magic, that's great. But don't have it being that their disability makes them more magical than anyone else. And I thought about this. I thought, well, when I was a kid, I used to love trying to identify with characters and heroes who were different and who were special. But obviously, if you're going to have somebody who within society already feels like they're being made to feel different, to then read about something that then makes them, emphasizes their difference more. And even if it makes them the hero of the story, that doesn't matter because magic isn't a cure-all. And you've got to make sure that when you write fiction with magic in it, that you're not just letting magic kind of cure problems in society or worse, you know, highlight them and make people feel even more different when they're reading about themselves within a magical setting. It's interesting in that um, it makes me think of, so I'm, I'm actually uh, hard of hearing, uh, have been for my entire life. And um, the way that I thought of that in relation to Rix's magic in the Obsidian Tower was actually in a weird sort of way. And it was that so when you've had something about you that forces you to interact with the world differently for your entire life, you come up with ways to deal with it and it seems normal to you. Um, and th- because this is just your life, it's everything that you've already always known and you tend to have strategies and, uh, and your own methods of navigating the world that may be a little different than other people's, but that to you, that's normal. And so I tried to, I kind of tried to draw on that in how my car- how Rix navigates the world despite the fact that she kills everything that she touches, which is very different than not being able to hear people very well. Uh, but, but in that sense that she would have established ways of dealing with it. Um, and I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this in regards to the question, but you mentioned disability and, and it just sort of leapt to my mind as uh, that. I think that I think it's especially dangerous if you're outside of an experience to try to draw connections between uh, a magical power and that experience, because your perspective on it is going to be very different than someone who's inside that experience and can see where any parallels or connections really do lie. Yeah, excellent point. We've mentioned how characters with aberrant magic can often have power beyond anyone else and controlling power is so important in all kinds of political spheres, whether you're a villain, whether you're just, you know, out to, I don't know, just become prime minister of whatever magical country you have. (laughs) 
But controlling that magic is really, really important. And sometimes a character may, you know, be able to learn to control their magic by lots of training, you know, coming up with with different ways to handle that. Maybe it's like the Hulk and you learn that, okay, I just can't get angry. Just nothing can make me angry, Um, you know, (laughs) or (laughs) whatever it is. Or you can have an external factor. Sometimes those external factors are used to thwart someone say like superman you've got kryptonite is basically a power limiter it sucks his power away from him and his enemies use that to their advantage there are all kinds of ways that you can basically entrap a magical user who has these abilities that maybe they don't want to use for you or they do i don't know but i think the the idea of control and power when it comes to magic is is really interesting but this often plays out in that those who control magic are using it for ill. What do we think about that? Both of my trilogies kind of turn around questions related to this in, in various ways. So I, this, is a, this is a topic that's particularly interesting to me. In both my trilogies, one of the sort of key concepts is that there are these little magical bracelets called Jesses that the, one of the countries uses to suppress the power of uh, mages to suppress or release it so that essentially the government can have some control over it. And one thing that was fun for me in writing the second trilogy is that I have two, in the two trilogies, there are very different perspectives on this and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and how the particular characters in it interact with it. First trilogy, uh, the Surgeon Fire trilogy, the, the main character you see interacting with that, she's not the viewpoint character, but she's sort of a co-protagonist, is um a fire warlock who does not want to jest, does not want uh, the government to control her magic, is worried about what they're going to do with it, and uh, just generally is uh, anti-establishment in general, and wants to learn how to control it herself instead and not have this external control imposed. And a lot of the trilogy focuses around her relationship with the person who's been put in charge of controlling her magic and how they sort of like come to terms with that. Whereas in the Obsidian Tower, Rix has no control over her magic. It kills everybody she touches. She thinks that the idea of not having to worry about that is the best, uh, despite coming from a country where magic equals status and magic is, and she's, uh, and there are a lot of expectations around it. And that's what gives her her status and political power. Just the idea of not killing people sounds great, but she's also aware of the complex political structures around it and that giving control over her power to a foreign government is maybe not such a simple question that there's political considerations tied in as well as what she personally wants. So, so there's that, uh, a lot of weighing They're like, okay, well, what do you want as a person with magical power? What's safest for the people around you? What does the state want or whoever is in charge, whether it's a big, you know, it could be a secret evil underground organization. It could be the government. It could just be your like controlling parents, you know, whoever's, whoever's putting this on you, why are that? Why do they want to do that? And, you know, and how much, how much factors in. And of course, the big difference in my two trilogies anyway is basically consent that Rix wants her power limited and, and Zyra in the first trilogy does not. And that has to sort of get negotiated, or at least the beginning of the trilogy, she doesn't. And that all has to sort of get negotiated in very <laughs> in ways that play out over a trilogy so I can't really summarize them all that well in a sentence now that I think of it but but yeah I think I think that in terms of that controlling power I think that most often we see that being someone with malign intent just because uh I mean you know 
magic is power. We all know what power does. Uh, like any other power source, anybody who's trying to amass it and gain control over it is often not doing it for the best motivations. I think I'm trying to think of examples where there's a systemic use of power limiters. I mean, uh, you know, like other than possibly in my trilogies that isn't seen as just straight out creepy and controlling. I don't know. Can you think of anything? No, most of my examples come up with, uh, yeah, once you control the power, you you are the creepy villain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just getting so much Sword of Truth vibes here. (laughs) Trying to think of that. (laughs) Yeah, Terry Goodkind was a favourite author of mine when I was 14. (laughs) (laughs) Just can't say that he is anymore. But yeah, many memories from that time. (laughs) But yeah, control, collars and stuff. You could tell it was written by a man. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) But sorry, but you can. (laughs) The minute it's a collar. Right. That comes with, that is such a loaded object. It comes with so much baggage that like, it just wouldn't go there. I would never go there. Like if you want to have a magic limiter, it's like, oh, you know, God. Yeah, and the fact that they put it on a man is just all these dominatrix women. It's just, oh, God. <laughs> should not have read that when I was 14. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people's introductions to science fiction and fantasy can be prefaced with should not have read that when I was 14. <laughs> you see, I like to say this a lot, but when I was younger, um, there was no YA genre. Like, young adult has massively increased in 20 years. Like, I just... When I went to the shop, I just, and I loved science fiction and fantasy, um, after reading things like Alan Garner, I I couldn't find anything that was my age group that was not, that I didn't feel like was deliberately too young, that's for children. I felt like I'm a teenager, you know, I want to be reading slightly more mature stuff. But unfortunately, the mature stuff you get handed is is Terry Kudkind and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, not really ready for to come across that sort of worldview at that age. Yeah, I started out with Anne McCaffrey, and there was uh, when I was about ten, and there was some stuff that went over my head, and it's probably for the best that it went over my head <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah, I, I kind of am a bit jealous of actually all the readers who uh, who get to to like dive into this genre today because the there's so much great YA being written and not just in fantasy but in you know across the genre in particular like you know it's just it's great you can like the whole you walk into a bookshop and there's whole sections of you know, oh, yeah. anything that you want um, whereas it just wasn't like that before I had to kind of you know so you end up reading stuff that you know it's probably might have been better not to read but you know hey look you know we're, we're, we're shaped by the books that we read when we're not formative years so uh, yeah. as much as I don't want to talk about Terry Goodkind at least I can say that yes aberrant magic and collars is <laughs> <laughs> is a thing <laughs> and we've seen it crop up several times and it's definitely like this this yeah but putting modes of control into objects um, like that is, yeah, it's something I, I kind of see, yeah, something we see quite a lot in fantasy, like bracelets, collars, magical amulets. And I feel like objects, particularly objects we wear on our bodies, have, so they come with certain kind of levels of significance that 
you know, maybe is missing from other elements of control that are not manifested in a, something that you can wear, for example? I think I've seen uh, tattoo kind of things. I mean, and then you have things like you'll get little sci-fi sort of implants like in Captain Marvel as ways of controlling or suppressing people's magic. It's very much a physical thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a physical thing because it's easier to describe or to to bring that picture alive for a reader than just being like, oh, well, there's like this weird force field. I mean, you know, all you have to do is think about how George Lucas tried to explain the force. Like it's it's much harder to do than if you just explain, well, here, I'll put this on you and that stops this thing from happening. <laughs> it's It's just a little bit more easy to understand. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I just think there are definitely, there are certain objects that carry more significance than others. Like, for example, collars very much are at the the hard extreme end of control, whereas maybe an amulet is not so much. <laughs> not to bring up Octavia Butler again, which I seem to do a lot, but also in her Parable series, there's um, a moment where their group of characters basically becomes enslaved and again they they put that collar on but that is i don't know it's so directly a metaphor for slavery it's not even a metaphor anymore it's just it it is kind of showing that recycling of history and the the way that we just kind of keep making the same mistakes over and over again so yeah it is it's very loaded if you do have aberrant magic there seems to be limited options for you If you manage to survive infancy, you are either a put-upon and ostracised heroic type or a villain. So why don't we ever see sidekicks as aberrant magic users? I want to see, you know, the the aberrant magic that turns out to save everyone is uh, actually poor little kid that's been sent to along to, like, you know, carry the maps or something. (laughs) I don't know. Like like the Podrick of the team. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was trying to think of examples of, of any examples where the sidekick is the one who has the, uh, uh, the magic. And I could think of cases where it's not the POV character, but often in those, but, but that still doesn't make them the sidekick. Usually it's more like they're the protagonist and the author has chosen to tell their story from a different POV. And the only other example I could think of off the top of my head is cases where it's a whole team of people who have aberrant magic, like, you know, the loser team kind of trope uh, uh, sometimes where everyone has like bizarre, little weird magical abilities that aren't, you know, uh, like the sort of mystery men kind of scenario where everybody has uh, like either just lame or weirdly specific powers and they band together. But that's, that's, that's a little bit different. And, you know, and sometimes you'll get, oh, the farm boy or whatever, who seems to be nobody and turns out to have it. But of course, they're they're always the protagonist from the start. So it's not like it's a real surprise. So, yeah. Yeah. Why don't we have the person who's not the point of view character and not the important one turn out to be? I think I've seen it actually more with people's pets than with sidekicks. Sometimes you'll have the uh, the familiar or the cat or whatever who turns out to be secretly a dragon or something. No, I, I totally get that. And immediately um, I was thinking of Nimona because while she's like the title character, she is the sidekick and she's also the cool dragon. Um, mm. But also I was thinking, I, I like what you were talking about, the pets and, and things like that, because 
What about with Frozen? Because it seems like Elsa could create life because she creates Olaf, but she only creates Olaf. So is he special? Like, he seems like the special magic that doesn't really, you know, because otherwise she's just creating ice and snow. And why does Olaf come to life and no- nobody else? Um, yeah, I suppose the the big scary ice monster that kicks them out of Elsa's ice castle is sort of alive, but he doesn't really have personality in the same sense. Oh, you clearly don't have an eight-year-old who watches all the extras. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a little bit at the end with the tiara. Yeah, when he gets the tiara and puts it on. And then there's a little bit at the end of Frozen 2 as well. Um, And his name officially is Marshmallow. (laughs) Seriously, that's what he's credited as. I don't have a small enough child to know all of that, but (laughs) (laughs) The one that I kind of thought about that sort of fits in psychics is I kind of wondered about the mentor figure. And then someone who helps guide a chosen one or whatever and is sort of seen as aberrant in that point of view. I mean, the first one I thought of was Ben Kenobi because he is the ultimate mentor figure. And he is within a magical universe, but because nobody uses magic anymore, he's seen as the aberrant one. And he's kind of the weird one that is, you know, in the in the desert and lives like a hermit kind of thing. But then when I expanded it out and thought, can I think of any character in a fully magic world where lots of people use magic and their particular type of magic is seen as aberrant or weird or slightly peculiar. And I came up with Olgra from the Dark Crystal, which Mm. kind of comes in with this whole mentor idea that everybody there has magic. It's just her kind of magic is, is like the kind of weird one. And it's the one that unlocks everything else, but she's kind of frowned upon a little bit. Yeah. I think, you know, part of the question comes in like, okay, if they've got the, the, aberrant magic why are they not the protagonist if they're going to be the sidekick right why aren't they fixing everything with their cool unique powers why why are they just polishing the dishes instead of going out there and defeating the dark lord why are they making us do it so you do need a reason if they're if they're not going to be the protagonist yeah i think the kind of obi reference is interesting because and the mentor figure because you could argue that merlin would fit those that that kind of category as well, really, because mm. like while Merlin is an extremely important figure, he is an Arthur, and Arthur is the hero of the Arthur. We call them the Arthurian legends, so we don't call them the Merlin legends. And Merlin is definitely a side character in Arthur's quest to be king and retake England and whatever other King Under the Hill narratives you want to include in this. So. That's another, so I think it's very interesting that you mentioned the whole idea of mentor being, because mentors are, like, by their very nature, they're not the main character, um, but they're absolutely necessary to the story of the hero um, and trying to to guide them. Yeah, another example that came to me, and I don't really know if it is a sidekick or not, because it is the title character, but I quite liked what they did with Disney's Maleficent, because, yes, it's her story, But in the grand scheme of things, she's also kind of the sidekick in a weird way, helping Aurora come into her own. I know in the original version, the um, cartoon version, she is, of course, the villain, but she kind of is sidekick material in the film. But it is it is a bit debatable because, I mean, the whole film is called Maleficent, so theoretically she's the title character. But then at the end, she kind of gives way to Aurora and she 
you know, steps down from the dark throne she has in the forest and gives it over to her goddaughter. So I don't, it's a little bit on the edge, but it was the closest I could come. But the same thing you could say for Wicked as well, Gregory Maguire's, and obviously the stage show that followed. Um, you know, you could say that Wicked is the, 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 Wicked Witch of the West is the titular character. So, you know, they're a protagonist. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we're talking about, we're trying to find kind of examples of sidekicks and coming up with these stories that are rewrites of uh, much better known stories where the villain or the so-called villain, there are some authors who have seen that villain to be actually less villainous than has been made out so they have rewritten the story from their perspective instead and they often then have aberrant magic that highlights a very interesting link between aberrant magic and villainy and the the othering and setting apart and the the fact that particularly this is this is very evident in wicked that the fact that very few people can kind of really understand where that magic comes from and you know what that who that person is because they're different and then you ask yourself well is that where villains come from is it that they have been rejected by society because of their difference right and that's that's such a common villain backstory why why are you doing this well because society cast me out and so you know, I'm now going to do this to get back at society or to take over the world. Or even sometimes you get the, you know, again, the Magneto-like villain who is supposedly doing it to help their their own similarly oppressed class of people or whatever. So that inversion seems like it's most likely to happen. Uh, I'm trying to think of a case where people have uh, enjoyed turning it around and telling it from the perspective of the villain where it didn't in fact turn out to be basically an inversion you know an aberrant magic situation where uh, it, it's just an inversion of the the rebel hero aberrant magic story like it really the only difference is methods you know the rebel hero has ad- aberrant magic and overthrows the the evil government or the dark lord or whatever with their aberrant magic but then the aberrant magic villain really does the same thing <laughs> is the aberrant magic i mean rebel hero just the backstory for the aberrant magic villain who's in power Mm. well i mean villainy uh you know who's the villain who's the hero it's much like uh history you know it's written by the victor so uh if the hero wins in the end uh it's clear that they've got the pr campaign not the villain Mm. am i allowed to throw deadpool into the ring because Deadpool himself doesn't have any magic. He just so happens that he has longevity. But he's got Negasonic as his sidekick, and he couldn't get to the villain unless she helped him, but she's very definitely a sidekick character. It's coming back to X-Men, so where they're all kind of working in a group, but that was the one example I could think of where there was a main character without what you would term magic versus someone who can throw fireballs. Hmm. Mm. Well, it also reminds me of the kind of Raceland Magier in Dragonlance, where he kind of goes back to become the villain in a way. He goes back to become the the great mage who was, in a way, the one who reached out to him in the test. It's all like they play with time travel and paradoxes in that. So, um, but as everyone knows, Raceland Magier is my favorite character of all time. So I'd like to just throw him in because he's amazing and yeah, aberrant magic. Uh, it's his aberrant magic really is rather than aberrant he just is really really good at magic (laughs) but it's also interesting because he is part of an ensemble cast 
where he's certainly not the main character in any of the original books. And then until he gets his spin-off series where he is the main character and he begins to grow in importance, then you realise how close his story is to a villain's story. Well, this has been a really, really fun discussion all about aberrant magic. And thank you so, so much, Melissa, for coming on and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.